Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we're welcoming a non-Charlotte area guest onto the podcast. Um, Hall T. Martin joins us today. Hall is the founder and CEO of 10 Capital Network. Um, 10 Capital essentially stands for the Texas Entrepreneur Network. He's started and run several, or I guess, um, yeah, started and run several angel networks down in the Texas area. Um, the Baylor Angel Network, the Texas Angel Open Network, um, again, 10 Capital, um, the Austin Entrepreneur Network. So Hall's got a lot of experience in starting and running um, angel groups down in the Texas area. Um, obviously, Austin is a hotbed for startups. Um, he's taken the networks and kind of grown them to the point where they have um, a, a good portion of their investors or investor money coming from outside of Texas as well. So just thought it'd be good to spend some time with him today talking about um, you know, what he's learned over the years running a network, what he's learned over the years investing in the companies, the ones that have been successful and unsuccessful. What are those lessons from both ends of the spectrum? So really good podcast with Hall today. Um, certainly some things that, um, I think we can at least take note of, if not even possibly mimic here in the Charlotte area. Really enjoyed having him on the show. As you'll learn, this, this was, was taped kind of right on the front edge of the whole COVID-19, um, situation. So, um, we'll dive into it a little bit, but not much at all. Um, so certainly hope everyone out there is staying safe and healthy and look forward to seeing many of y'all back out and in, in the Charlotte, you know, startup and angel community here over the course of the next couple of months. Um, but again, in the meantime, please enjoy another podcast. Um, this one with Hall T. Martin from the Texas Entrepreneurial Network. Hall, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. You are our first Texas guest and we are excited to have you. So, um, as I said, you know, being from Texas, not from Charlotte, a lot of our listeners are Charlotte based. So, um, why don't you take a few minutes and just tell us, tell us who Hall Martin is. Right, William. Well, thank you for inviting me to be here today. Glad to be here. And so on my side, I'm, my name is Hall Martin. I'm a longtime angel investor. I uh, worked for a company that went IPO in 1995 and I started doing angel investing after that. And I remember the first deal I put my money into, I lost all of it and started realized that this is harder than it looks. And there's more, more going on here than it appeared. And so we, we had an angel network in Austin that ran from 95 to 2002. And they were tied to the dot-com world. When that went away, they went away with it. And we didn't have an angel network for four or five years. And then the city did a restart and they called it the Central Texas Angel Network. And I was one of the first members to sign up. And when you're the first member to sign up, you're automatically on the board in charge of membership. And so <laughs> it was a great honor, no pay, but it was a great honor and did that for two years and uh, became the, um, actually ended up being the director for those first two years. And so we put together the team and the process and the membership and uh, we got about five million invested in twenty deals, and uh, got the members a forty x return off one of those deals. So it was a great kickoff to a new angel group, and and, and partly our timing was great. Two thousand six, when we started it, was the time of the angel. Back in the nineties, I think that belonged primarily to the venture capital. Remember in the 90s, they would stand up and they'd ask for $5 million to start a web business. I tell mm -hmm. that today to people and they don't believe me. And I have to say, well, you know, back in the 90s, you didn't just, uh, you know, get a hosting with GoDaddy and, you know, throw, throw a piece of code up there. 
you had to go build your own server farm. You had to pay American wages for everything. You didn't rent anything. You had to buy everything. And yeah. hosting was very expensive. And so it just took a lot to get it going back then. But by 2006, those $5 million deals had come down to be $500,000 startup requirements. And that moved from the VC world into the angel world. So we were right there at the right time with angel investing because that really met the market's need and so forth. And so I ran that for two years, and then my alma mater, Baylor University in Waco, came to me and said, we want an angel network out of our alumni association, and we're going to give the students a, a great educational experience because they're going to be a part of this, learning how you invest. So I stepped out of CTAN and went and worked for Baylor and still a member of there today. And so we started that angel network and got that up and running with a great student component to it that was part of the university. And then I did another angel network in uh, a county north of Austin called Williamson County. We called it Wilco. And so we put an angel network there and started doing deal flow because everybody wanted to become an angel at that time. So I started three angel networks. And what I saw when I put that together is that it um, uh, we had many an entrepreneur come in and pitch to our room full of investors. And I was always surprised that of all the people that came in that pitched, 90% would go away and we would never hear from them again, have no idea what happened. They just disappeared on us and they got very little money out of it too. 10% though came back and gave us an update, gave us reminders. They were in the coffee shop as much as I was. And uh, they it became clear that the secret sauce to raising funding was you have to build a relationship and you have to demonstrate a growth story. So those updates were showing that, yeah, we're continuing to sell the product, we're adding more team members, things are clicking up and to the right, and we're getting to know each other a little bit better. On the fourth or fifth update, out came the checkbooks. And I, for many years, said to entrepreneurs, you need to create a list of the investors you talk to. You need to give them updates every month. You need to go back to them. And very, very few actually ever did that. And pri primarily because they just got busy with the business. You know, you have to build product and hire a team and close customers. And and the and what I found is that all of those people, employees and customers are are, are squeaky wheels. If they're not getting what they need, they're in there talking with you. But angels, we were not squeaky wheels. I was never going back to that uh, entrepreneur saying, you ought to give us updates. So, so it just never got done. And so that's why... In 2009, I retired from my day job and started a company called Texas Entrepreneurs Network. And we were helping startups raise money primarily from those angel groups, getting their documents together, uh, introducing them to investors, and then keeping that investor relations or that campaign going to show that you know the, this is going up and to the right. And that worked very well. And then over time, I needed more money than just what was in Austin, and then I need more than what was in Texas. So I recruited a venture capital into my network and family offices in my network and uh, had it to a pretty good size to, to fund those deals. Around 2016, I started getting calls from outside of Texas saying, I want access to your investors, but I'm not in Texas. What do we do about that? So we, we changed the name from Texas Entrepreneurs Network to 10 Capital. That's what 10 stands for. And started running our program around the U.S. instead of just around Texas. And at heart is introductions and investor relations. And I thought early on, well, maybe I should become a broker or dealer get the license and do that, and then discovered I was going to lose half my angel and all of my VCs because they don't allow brokers to be in the deal. If you're a broker, they're, they're not doing it because uh, that, that's against their fund or their, their mm -hmm. group rules or what have you. So I went the non-broker route, and we just charged the companies a monthly fee to go through that process and uh, tell that growth story. So that's how we got to where we are today. That's a phenomenal story. Um, so let's circle back around and um, kind of talk about meetings for a little while. Um, let's go through kind of a, um, a structure perspective. You've run, you know, several different angel groups and, and now you run, you know, the 10 Capital Network. Um, how do you, how have you learned? It's, so the network that, you know, I'm part of here in Charlotte is this um, um, Charlotte, um, um, Charlotte Angel. Um, oh gosh, I can't think of it. Um, um, but we have a monthly meeting. Three companies come in and pitch. 
Um, and then we take those three companies, um, after each one pitches, we ask questions for 10 minutes. And then once the third company is pitched, all companies leave and we sit back and we kind of talk about the companies and everybody gives their open, honest feedback. And, um, and then from there we go back and we've got kind of a, a comprehensive, you know, uh, follow-up questionnaire that asks about team product, et cetera, et cetera. And do we think it's a company that's worth going forward on? So what have you found works best in those type of network environments? So it's great to have a, a dinner club model like that where people come together to share information. And I, in looking at, and those are the three uh, the three investor networks I put together, that, that's exactly what they were, dinner club models. And what I found is that a lot of the work could be done offline through email, websites, et cetera. But the face-to-face with the entrepreneur and the sharing of information, that, that still needed to be done in person as much as possible because there's a, a qualitative element that comes into due diligence that when the entrepreneur walks in the room, you're sizing up their ability to sell and communicate. You know, if they can't sell the investor, how they can sell a customer. And so you're, you're trying to figure those things out. And then the biggest value of an angel network is you're sharing the, the deal flow and the due diligence with other members. And so you're, it's great to hear what other people have to say about it. So at the core, that's, that's a great thing to have. The thing I would, uh, I was, I always noticed when I was in C10 and these other groups is that a lot of the screening could have been done up front with email, and a lot of the after uh, presentations could be done. Due diligence can be done with websites and tools, and to a certain extent, we were we were doing that. We weren't doing that rigorously, but we we were doing that. And so I was just trying to pull out of that meeting process as much of the administration as we could to leave the rest of the time for the face-to-face interactions. And I see a lot of angel groups doing that today. And partly that's what we're doing with Texas Entrepreneurs Network is we were trying to do as much online as we could and got a fair distance down the way, but then found you, you do need to have investors meeting the entrepreneur face-to-face. Now, crowdfunding came in, and I did crowdfunding for about three years. We had a Texas interstate license, and that worked great. But that, that type of thing worked well for breweries, wineries, and consumer product goods. So we funded a whole bunch of breweries with that. But it didn't work well for tech. It didn't work well for healthcare. You needed more money. You needed a different type of investor. And when you get to – so on crowdfunding, the average investment was around $2,500 per person. And I okay. figured, well, most people, if it's just $2,500, i will just put the credit card in and be done with it. I'm not going to travel anywhere. But when they put 25000 in or 50000 well, now we need to have a discussion about it and so forth. So that's, that's how angel groups still have a separate place from the crowdfunding world. A lot of these guys who do crowdfunding, their very next stop is the angel group. I remember when crowdfunding came up, a lot of the angels resisted crowdfunding. They thought that was not the right way to do it. But I kind of looked at it as market validation. It's just the uh, people who are, if they come to me and they've raised money from the crowd, there's some value there. If they came to me and they said, well, the crowd wouldn't give us money, well, that's, that's a telling point as well. It's kind of like when they come in and they say they didn't put money and their family didn't put money and nobody bought anything, hey, would you like to invest? Well, the answer yeah. is no, nobody's in this deal. There's no support. And I saw crowdfunding as just another box of support that could be applied to your deal to convince you that there's market validation or product validation here in some level. But to answer your question, I think with the angel group and the meetings, um, I, I just try to get as much of the administrative out of it and online because that's where most people's work lives on the online anyway. And so you want to have your tools there. I remember the very first time we used a Gus package, this is back in 2007 when it first came out, you literally had to go three menus over, two menus down, click a button on the next screen, two menus over, one menu down, click a button. And then the on the upper left was the, the deals. And now you can see the deal. And uh, one of the advantages that crowdfunding brought was it said, well, you know, when somebody comes, the first thing you do is just show them the deal. Don't, don't make them yeah. find it. Just put it right up there. So I thought crowdfunding did a lot for us with user interfacing, moving tools online, showing how you display things, and uh, that kind of moved it forward in a big way. So, yeah. So you you still see value in the crowdfunding model, just not across all 
um, um, kind of all startup scenes, right? It's, you know, to your point, it still fits with breweries and kind of physical location things that aren't raising maybe as much money or um, it's just a different set of folks that step into a crowdfund role versus an angel role. Is that you right. still kind of have that view? Right. So it worked well with those who had, a, for example, a, com- a consumer product out there. There was a lot of people and they you're, you were essentially getting your customers to invest in your business. They knew you, they, they liked you and they wanted to be a part of it. And then same thing with the breweries. There was a community flavor around it. We had a, uh, a German community here in the Austin area that uh, had 2,000 people come out to their opening day of the brewery because it was a German brewery. And I asked one guy, now, why, why did you invest? He said, well, in 100 years, there'll be two things standing here, the bank and the brewery, and I want to be a part <laughs> of the brewery. And so they felt like that was a real investment into their community because those things stay around for a long time. And then uh, the third thing is, is people who come to these crowdfunding sites, they, they have to be able to pick up what you're doing and the value of what you're doing just right there on the screen. You're not there to explain it to them. And so they, so things that are very easily picked up do well through crowdfunding. Things that, and when you get into tech and healthcare deals, a lot of the values in the team or the technology or the market segment, and those don't usually come through on the crowdfunding screen in such a nice way. So I think for some things it, it fits well and is, is just yet another tool. I have a, I have a funding program I, I always invite startups to do. And, you know, if you're going to start a business, the first thing I say to do is go out and raise 10K from family and friends. Nobody's getting paid back. Just a, just 10K donations and you can build a website and get the patents, get the entity filed and so forth. So just that guy that I told about before that came in that nobody in his family would put money in, uh, you now can say my family put money in and then you put money in and then you go pre-sell something on a Kickstarter and, and build those supports as you go along the way. So you have something there. Uh, Gaining that slow traction, right? Just um, momentum along the way. Right. I always coach the, uh, the startup to say every, every investor should be putting some support into your business. And the family putting in 10K, that shows support. Crowdfunding, that shows customer support. And then you get to angels. Now we're getting uh, more you know, non-family and friends support behind this. And if you have that, this is starting to look like a better picture to the venture capital and the private equity and the later stage investors because you're building support into the business. In most cases, they're putting money in. They're also giving you help, you know, contacts and advice and networking and those type of things. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, so you took what you learned from angel investing and you built out something in the crowdfunding space and now you've taken what you've learned from the crowdfunding space and you've almost re-entered it back into the angel space with the 10 capital network. Is that right? Right. So when we started working with angels and we, we basically moved from crowdfunding to back to accredited investors, because if you're going to raise more than a million dollars, you have to be in the credit investor space. The crowdfunding world is changing. They are going to allow the raise the one million dollar limit on Title Three crowdfunding to be five million dollars here in the near future. So it's changing from that point of view. But I found it was very hard to raise that much money, $2,500 at a time. And so, yeah. and the, and so to get the bigger dollars had, you know, 25, 50 K, hundred K. Now we can start to get to two, three, $4 million raises and that would be easier. And so that's, that's when we came back, we said, well, let's, let's go back to the accredited investor. And what we noticed when we did crowdfunding is that 95, we had a portal and we would take every startup's documents and recast them into the portal. And we would have to get every investor in and out of that portal. Cause that's what you did. You, you have a portal and everybody has to go in there and look at the deals. But what I found is 95% of whatever happened on those crowdfunding campaigns happened off of the email. In other words, people weren't going out to these portals and hanging out to wait for me to post something up there. They were going because I sent them an email that sent them there. And so I had the idea one day when we were trans, you know, moving to 10 capital format and going across the country, well, what if we 
take it back out of the portal? And what if we just put this back on the email? And so we, because then we reduce the friction and then we reduce the amount of time we're recasting documents and found that that was a tremendous boost to our productivity and to traction with investors. Because when the investor gets the email, they open it up, they read it, and then we have three buttons at the bottom, intro, pass, follow. So don't worry about having to tell us what to do you just hit the button as to what you want you want to call you want to see more of it you don't want to see it again and we'll take it from there we'll put you on the right list and manage it at that point and you don't have to log in and everyone has 200 login passwords they have to deal with and we didn't want to be the 201st one and so we found that that solved a lot of issues with that and then when most of the entrepreneurs who came to us brought us good to very good documents, and we didn't have to go spend a lot of time recasting them into the portal. Um, I saw one crowdfunding portal once that basically says, you'll need to fill out all these documents with the financials and the PowerPoint and so forth. Your estimated time of filling it out is 8 to 10 hours. And I mm-hmm. thought, now, in today's world, who is going to be doing that? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So I uh, thought we would try to get the cost down on them as well. And then we were all about reducing costs. And that's one advantage of being of not being a broker is that you don't have compliance costs and you don't have back-end fees. You don't have all this other stuff. And that's why a lot of brokers never worked with Seed and Series A is they were just too expensive. So we thought, well, we've got to get the cost down so we can work with people in the Seed Series A stage where they, they've got some budget, but they don't have that much budget. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So what's... Um what is ten? Uh, what is what is the ten capital network structure now? How do you operate? So a lot of it's online. You've got a um, you've got a national presence now, right? Hall. Um, how do you um, how do you how do you work with those investors outside of Charlotte? And so what we do is we someone comes to us and wants to raise funding. We use their pitch deck to make an introduction mailer and we send it out to our network and everybody's divided by revenue sector and stage and type of investor, angel, venture capital, family office, healthcare, tech, CPG, uh, revenue could be pre-revenue, some revenue, 500K of revenue or more, whatever that is. And based on revenue sector and stage, we go out to that portion and say, here's a deal that fits your criteria. And then they hit the intro pass follow button and we can put them on to the next stage. After a while, we'll then start holding webinars where people can come in and ask questions and so forth. I found it took two or three updates before investors start to get enough information. They can start to ask meaningful questions and start to get a sense that there's really momentum and traction here. They don't see those two things. Well, then it it can be hard to engage them online. So we have to warm them up a little bit. It takes uh, four or five weeks to do that. But then those who say, yeah, this looks interesting and I have some questions, well, we invite them to a webinar. And then we have a physical event program. It's currently on hold now, but we'll <laughs> bring it back here soon where we go in, uh, in about 20 cities around the U.S., New York, San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, Seattle, et cetera. We come out and we we have a, a three-hour session where people can meet each other because for some, that's still a key issue. I gotta I like to meet with them and you know see them eye to eye and talk to them and really understand what's really there. What I see on paper looks good, but I just want to meet the team. And so we help with that as well with those events. And then we also do a podcast program like yours where we interview the companies and in another another segment, we interview the investors. So if you want to learn more about them, you can go out and listen to their podcast and they can talk about what they invest in and who they've invested in, et cetera, and learn more about those investors. And then for companies, we have them do sector reviews. Here's what's going on in my industry and why this is a great place to invest. And then on the back end, they talk a little bit about how their company fits into that landscape. And so that's how our program works is we're fundamentally, we're making introductions and we're caring for the investor relations because the secret is you have to have a growth story. Things have to be moving now. That should show up and it's all futures. They're, they're probably not going to do anything. And second is you have to build a little bit of a rapport or relationship with the investor. So as you do the interactions, they're going to try to figure out, is this going to be a, a good thing to be a part of for the next uh, three, five, seven years? And that they have to, you have to check mark that box as well. And then they make a decision at that point. So I mean, you've, taken a, you've taken a localized angel group 
and you've made it national. Um, at what point in time did you realize that that was going to happen or was it just really trying to continue to fill the needs of investors and entrepreneurs as you grew it? Um, when did it become intentional? I mean, it's a phenomenal operation that you've built. Right. Well, I saw entrepreneurs going out and they were going from angel group to angel group and they didn't know which ones to go to. So they were just trying what they could and getting in where they could. And so thought that one of the values we could bring was more on the syndication side. So if you if you raise money in Texas from one angel network, you can go around and raise money from the others pretty easily. But but in most cases, you're you're basically starting over again. You have to go fill out the form again. Some use Proceeder, some use Gus and other tools. And you have to go through their process. And we were coaching people through that and how that works. And, and some were familiar with it and some were not. And, you know, angel groups have defined schedules. Things happen when they're scheduled to happen, not sooner. And you have to have certain documents put together in advance. And so we were we were doing a lot of that for them already and then introducing them to groups that we thought would be a good fit. And then they go through that process and then coach them through that process. You have to go follow up. You have to go back and uh, gather them together. You have to offer the diligence and just to make sure that they were aware of how that works and so we thought we were very helpful on the syndication side so if you have funding from one group that can be leveraged and parlayed into follow-on funding from other groups and the more you have the faster it goes um no i mean again it's a phenomenal phenomenal thing that you built it it's got to make it i mean you've got a great you've got to get great feedback from um from the companies that come and pitch in it, just from the simplification of the process for them. I mean, you know, you know, rather than pitching, you know, 30 groups, they can kind of come in and pitch one and still get access to quote unquote 30 groups. Right. Absolutely. They, and that's what people come to us for is they're looking for access to investors and investor engagement. Some need help with their documents, some need help with term sheets, et cetera, but primarily is engagement with them. And once they're talking with them, it's they have to answer the questions and go through the diligence process. And, and for the, the first timers, we're, we're talking to them about putting their diligence together in one place and creating a data room and so forth. And that's that's what brokers primarily did was they would gather all that information together and they would do compliance on it and then they charge a, 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 a high fee for it. And we were looking at that saying, well, all you really need to do is put these these documents in this place and you you now are ready for diligence from uh, from the, the from the document point of view. And then there's no 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 special charge for that. So we got the cost way down just in coaching people through it. Um, along the way, you've, um, you've kind of started to take a different approach with, um, with entrepreneurs, how you invest, um, and your expectations upon an exit. Um, talk about your, um, I mean, I guess spell out what your terms are these days, how you look at, um, how you view exits and then let's kind of, um, circle back through it and, and maybe figure out how you got there. Sure. So what what I found is that if you analyze any long-term angel group's returns, and I sat through Baylor and CTAN, and on the West Coast, I went through Band of Angels and uh, Tech Coast Angels in Southern California. These are groups that have been together for 10 years. And what surprises me is they were all the same. At, at a high level, out of 10 deals, one was a home run, 10, 20, 30, 40x or more. One of them went under. It just, you know, it is bankrupt and gone. Uh, two had something of a return, one, 1.5 to 3x, something like that. And the other six turned into lifestyle businesses, and uh, they're still there, but we, we don't expect anything from them. And so out of 10 deals, nine are up and running, but only three are really producing. And every now and then an angel group would come in with four or five, but you really don't see much more than that. The rest just went away. But in some cases, what surprised me is how, how many of them didn't really go under. They just, they just went sideways. And so Crunchbase came out with a report saying out of every – Hundreds uh, seed investments, only 42 go on to do a Series A. That means 58 are now going sideways. They really aren't on that venture track anymore. And then I found that when you're in those sideways businesses, what do we do? 
it's really hard if you haven't already put something in the term sheet about that situation. So I came up with a term sheet called the 3X and 3 Redemption Right term sheet. And it's basically a convertible note that at year three, the investors get the, the option, investor sole discretion, of either taking 3X their investment, 100K in is 300K out, or they get to move to the cap table and be an equity investor because they think that's going to be the better deal for them. The, the reality what I've seen when using this is that there's really a hundred different choices. I've seen people take out their principal and leave the rest for equity. I've seen people take out their principal and leave the rest for debt. I've seen them take out 3X, but leave all of the money in as debt. And they just do many different things. And that's because here today, we don't know where the company will be three years from now. But when we get there, we'll have a clearer picture and we'll be able to structure our investment at that point. So it helps the company and it also provides an, an exit for the investor. So when they come to me today to sign an equity term sheet, I'm saying, well, I'm not going to make that decision today. In three years, I'll make that decision. But today, here's the money and you get to keep all of it or use all of it. In year three, we'll, we'll sit down for 30 days and figure out uh, what's the best way to go forward. But, but I, I really don't want to be in this deal seven, eight, 10 years, because uh, I've, I've had experience with that. And I've talked to many investors who have as well. So you've got to get pushback. Three years seems too short, right? Um, why isn't it five? Why isn't it seven? Um, you know, the angel group's going to be around for 10 years. Why can't you give me a little bit? I mean, what's um, you've gotten every pushback under the sun. How have you kind of ended up on the terms that you got to? Well, my own personal experience is I, I had a group in Austin that I invested in back in the early 2000s, and they were doing IT asset deployment. And what I found was that I put my money in, I put in 50K, and about three years afterwards, it starts to become clear which way this is going. And you can tell which way this is going because at year three, they come back with one or two things. A, we're going to raise more funding and grow and we've got half the money raised. Okay, this is on the venture track. This is, I want to be a part of the venture deal. Or B, they come back and they say, our guys have worked really hard. I think everybody should move to market rate salaries. And I remember the first time I heard that, I had tremendous cognitive dissonance come over me because it sounded right. Yeah, they have worked hard. We should do something for them, but no, that's wrong. And I, it took me a day or two to step back and think it through and say, oh, that's right. We, you know, The entrepreneur is working at below market rate salaries to make this as big as possible for a big exit for equity. Or, and the investors are not taking out revenue or profit or dividends to, again, make this as big as possible to sell the business for a return for everybody. And when the entrepreneur is going to market rate salaries, what they're really doing is leaving the equity track and moving to the payroll exit track. And they're just going to dividend it out. And, so, and at year three, what happens is, in most cases, is the entrepreneur starts to do some calculations. If I sell the business I have built, I get this much. If I keep it for the next five, six, seven years, I'll get this much. And if uh, the second is greater than the first, uh, that's what they do. And uh, sometimes they didn't build the business we thought they were going to build. Sometimes the market didn't turn out the way we thought it was going to turn out. But I've seen many, many investors stranded on the equity tr exit uh, with no way to get out because there's nothing in there. Because if you ever go back after you sign the check to try to negotiate that, especially three, five years later, it is almost impossible to come to a, an agreement on the value of what you put in. The investor's thinking this is worth 2x my money, 3x my money, 4x my money. And the entrepreneur's sitting there thinking, oh, this is worth a 20% return, 30% return, or 40% return. And, and it, it's almost impossible to close the gap. So you have to put those terms in the term sheet up front. And in many cases, you're, you're bringing your own term sheets to the table as well. So when you do that, are you, um, let's, let's think through the, the normal angel group for a second, or just the normal angel investor, um, that's doing, you know, some stuff on the side outside of a group. And they hear this and they say, well, that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, oftentimes they're not filling out around all by themselves. So do you end up dictating that for the, for the entire round, or do you have your own term sheet that you walk into and say, Hey, look, even if we don't complete this round, 
we want a different set of documents than everybody else. So I've, I've come to the conclusion that uh, I'm only going to do things that have a defined exit. And that's my message to investors is define the exit. And yeah. if you ever ask a startup, what's the exit? Of course, you get the, the vague and the fuzzy rendition and nobody really knows. And so I've come to conclude, well, then we'll use my term sheet because there is a defined exit here. And I and two things happen. Number one is if I can always tell who's truly thinking of the venture track all the way through because when I ask for their exit and I get the vague and the fuzzy, the first thing I say is, well, would you give me 3X in three years, my money? And they divide into two groups very quickly. The first group says, yes, we can do that. Our financial forecast says that. We have to do these fundraises. We have to hit these targets, but we can do that. That means they are really planning for a venture track. The other half come back and almost instantly say, oh, we'll never be able to do that. And you can tell that they, they really aren't thinking venture all the way through. We were just funding a lifestyle business there, and they just didn't want to pay the SBA bank loan part of it. And so <laughs> that's, that's the thing that you have to start separating out is who is truly on the venture track, building a venture business and going all the way. So number one, it's a great test. Number two is uh, when we get to year three, uh, I'm not saying I'm never I'm not going on the equity uh, track ever. I'm saying I'm going to delay that decision until year three to see what see how you have actually done. Have you built a venture business? Are you on the venture track? Are you do you still want to be on the venture track? Because if you don't, if you really wanted to just uh, turn that into a lifestyle business, I have no problem with that. You go on the payroll exit. I am following you with that, with the 3X. I will be joining you right there. It's your decision, not mine. You're, you're deciding what this is going to be. You're running the business. I'm, I'm, an, I'm a um, minority investor, so I'm really not controlling or dictating anything. I'm just sitting here watching what you do. And if you want to do the venture, I'm with you. I'd rather have a 10, 15x return down the road uh, rather than a 3x, but uh, that's if you're still working on that. If we get to year three and we find you're not, that's fine. You you go on the payroll track. I'll go on the uh, 3x track, and we are we will maintain alignment is what we do. So, so just kind of walk through that for just a second. So let's say the lifestyle business person. Um, and you go on the 3X track with them after the end of the third year. Um, what does that look like from a you get paid back perspective? Um, is it a, is, does it turn into a note where they're paying you back on a yearly basis? Are you holding it for five years after that? What does it look like after the third year when it's a lifestyle business and you decide to you know, tag along on that lifestyle business? So, so basically, it's a convertible note at year three, it matures. And so at that point, if I'm taking the 3x redemption right, I put in 50k, I get 150 out, I'm now a 150k debt holder on their balance sheet. And we sit down and we figure out what would be a payout plan. Most are six to 12 months long, and they're just going to pay me out the 150K out of that. And in some cases, they're happy with that in the sense that they don't have to find an equity exit for me anymore. We're going to go take care of this in this way. And depending upon their margins and growth rates, they can pay out at a certain rate. And I'm, you know, I always look at it. I could either be there in 10 years or I could be in there in the year three to five. You know, if it takes two years to pay me back, that's fine. Other, you know, back when I was doing the equity things, I was in there for 10 years. And so that's why yeah. I'm happy to do the uh, uh, whatever the payback plan is on that to to pay me off and just be the patient investor to get paid back. It's long term gains, et cetera. But I'm I, there's a now a defined exit and, and we're, we're undergoing that in some ways. If if I think there really is going to be an equity exit, you know, maybe I, I take out my principal for debt and the rest goes to equity. A lot of guys do that. So there's different okay. ways you can do with it. Yeah. And I mean, you can see pretty quickly where the flexibility in it comes along. Um, but I would imagine you kind of, you don't, <laughs> you don't want to be a 10 year note, note holder on this, right? I and mean, your longest terms on a, on a payback structure probably are that two to three year time period unless you leave something in there for equity. That's right. And, and some, some are worth having something in there for equity because it, it could be a home run. You don't want to be a take out at three year three and then find out it is really true the, the next Facebook and it could have been bigger. 
but you know the reality is the vast majority are not, so that's really not a concern. The 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 two pushbacks I get from it is number one, no startup will ever take that, and I find that there are many startups that will take that deal. And one of the questions we get into is not do you do three x and three or not is how much money do you take on a three x and three, and usually it comes out anywhere from two fifty k to a million dollars, and then they they don't take on more than that at this point, but they they will take on some because they can pay that back. And it's a different dynamic when they sign a 3X and 3 versus an equity term sheet. If they, they're signing a term sheet where they never have to go back to you for any other decisions, um, you know, maybe you get your quarterly reports, maybe you don't, maybe you get updates, maybe you don't. But when you're on 3X and 3 and they know that you're 3, they have to convince you to stay in, uh, you get a lot more service and uh, update and coaching because uh, it, the vast majority are, are motivated to have you keep your money in and they have to yeah. come back to you because uh, in year three, if it's not a good experience, you're, you're probably going to be out and they, they really want to see the money stay in because it's, it's helping grow the business, of course. So it changes the dynamic in those first three years as well. Um, that's an interesting um do you remember the first company that the first company that you presented it to? Um, uh, how'd it go? I'm, I imagine nowadays it's it's so standard and people kind of know it coming into the network that it's one of the things that you're going to put on the table. But the first company, I mean, I probably not heard of ever. Before, I want to say ever because everything's been heard of. Um, but the first company just kind of um, take a step back or. Uh, they sign up for and yeah, say, yeah, we, we got this. Right. And, and the first company just it actually turned out to do very, very well. By the time we got to the end of the uh, first year, they were in negotiations to be bought. And so, um, you know, it just went went that direction. Other yeah. companies, they were not in negotiations to be bought. And in some cases, they were happy to work out a plan to pay us out because it, it it wasn't going to be as big a market as they thought, and it wasn't as easy as they thought. There's a lot of competition, so they were just trying to settle it with everybody, and so we just worked out a payment plan for the debt in that case. And we've had other other ones do it. I found investors were much faster to sign up for those things, 3X and 3, because there is, an, there is a liquidity option built into it, and that, that's the challenge most angels have is uh, – the lack of liquidity can be tough. And so if you have an option, they're, they're much faster to put money on the table in there as well. Yeah, no, I mean, again, it's a phenomenal deal. I mean, you're, you're, um, you're obviously extraordinarily active in the angel community, not just in Texas, but now nationally. Um, do you see that um, or more people kind of gravitating towards what you're doing on the, um, the three X and three? Well, the first thing I saw people do was what was called revenue-based funding. They would move from angel investing to revenue-based funding where you take a piece of the revenue. And I've done a little bit of that myself. And one of the challenges I found with revenue-based funding is the the, the, the the intense amount of overhead that goes into it. We have to call every month and ask what the revenue was. And in many cases, you have to be in the QuickBooks and you have to be in the bank account. You have to be watching this stuff. And it just seemed like a lot of work for what looked like a term loan to me in most cases. But anyway, uh, decided, well, what if I left all the money in there and just take take it out you know, at year three instead of uh, before? And you know, the, the biggest complaint I get from... Uh, Angels says, well, no startup can pay that back. And I go back to the, the that first case I talked about where I invested in that Austin deal. I put in 50K. Uh, at year three, they wanted to go to market rate salaries. Well, they ended up doing that. They went to market rate salaries. And I estimate over the next seven years of the life of that business, they took out about $3 million in the form of salaries between the C-level uh, people. And I, I put in 50K, and they later sold the business at year 10 for uh, what turned out to me to be a 75K. You know, if I put 50K in, I got 75K back. I got 25K return for my 10-year hold there. 
Uh, FYI, that's a 4% IRR. FYI, that's not good. Uh, And they took out $3 million. So I got 25 and they got 3 million. I'm thinking, what's wrong with this picture? And so the the answer is, is um, it may take some time, but if they can pay themselves a salary, they can pay the investors a decent return. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm just looking for a decent return. You know, angel investors want to be in the 40 plus percent uh, IRR, internal rate of return on this. And that's what a 3X is. It's uh, 44%. And if you go out 10 years, if you want a 44%, that 3X has to grow to be a 40X. So if it's a 40X, that's great. Let's wait 10 years. But the vast majority are not. And so uh, you have to start thinking about the time value of money and you know getting a return for your investment. And and you know, setting it up so you're 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 geared to success on these things versus uh, the hope and pray strategy where a lot of people are using and I was using for a while. I just hope it's going to be a great thing and saw you know saw them go under for all kinds of reasons that you can never fi- figure out. There's so many exogenous factors in this; it's really hard to figure out. And thought, well, why don't we just go for the early exits? And there were there were people several years ago, Basil Peters, you know, t- you know, promoting the idea of early. X's don't get in there and try to go the distance. You get so many things happening with uh, venture capital following on and cramming down and uh, you know changing economies that you really should be thinking shorter term on these things in order to be successful at it. Yeah, no, it makes um, uh, you know the sh- the short investment, the three X and thirty. I mean, when you told me about it when we first started talking a couple months ago. Um, you know, it made perfect sense. And here you go into more detail on it today. It makes more sense. So um, it'd be interesting to watch and see how that spreads throughout the angel communities and networks over the course of the next five years. Um, yeah. So um, let's pivot for a few minutes, um, you know, 10, 15 minutes left kind of in our podcast today. Um, let's pivot for a few minutes. I mean, you've been in the Austin world, you've you know, been in Waco, and then now over the course of the last couple of years with, with the 10 Capital Network, you go to 15 or 20 cities and do some of these face-to-face things. Um, what do you see, um, what do you see successful cities doing in the startup early stage funding space, right? What does it take to, you know, in Austin, obviously started, you know, way back in the in the 90s with and um, kind of got off the ground with Dell. And it, it's great to have such a, a big company like Dell there and some other things, you know, developed along the way. But what do you see in cities do successfully to grow their kind of startup communities? Well, they, they provide education. That's the first thing that you do is there's plenty of accelerators and incubators and other tools that for those who want to do it, they come in and do it. I've always had the belief that the successful communities were, were based not so much on uh, you know what the Chamber of Commerce did as much as it was driven by successful entrepreneurs. And so communities that put in programming that was driven by successful entrepreneurs tended to do a lot better than it was just, you know, here, here's your standard startup business uh, tools and there you go. And what happens is you end up building a, a center of competency in some areas. I was talking to people in Nebraska and I asked, well, who are the successful serial entrepreneurs? And they were people that were making back office software for insurance companies. And so I coached them, you should be building an entrepreneur community around back office software for on, uh, insurance companies because you have competence in the area, you have sex, sex story in the area, you've got all these kind of other things driving it. Let's start from there and then grow it out. And, and what what happens is you, you want to match what's in your local region, not not what you envision it to be. I was in some parts of Texas and they were competent in oil field services and in other things that, you know, around agriculture. And I thought we well, ought to build an entrepreneur ecosystem around those things because you have plenty of customers, you have successful entrepreneurs, you have competence in there and start with what you're good at and then expand it out from there. And I saw so many communities want to jump off and be the next Silicon Valley. But I can tell you, you know, that, you know, 
a lot of these communities, especially in the Midwest, simply do not have the resources that Silicon Valley has. They don't have the money. They don't have the competence. They don't have the success stories. They don't have so many things that 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 that's really a hard game to really grow. So start find out what you're good at. What are the top three things your area is good at? People as well as customers as well as uh, the, 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 the startup, uh, you know, skill set of the talent pool you can get and then focus on that as being your, uh, core growth story for uh, building your entrepreneur ecosystem. And then go to those successful entrepreneurs and tell them, I want you to lead this, but you don't have to do anything. You don't, all you have to do is stand up and do the keynote speech and, uh, share words of wisdom, but, the rest of us will take care of the administration and the marketing and the programming and the content and the event management and all that stuff. And so I thought that's what was successful is getting the successful entrepreneurs to, you know, be the face of the campaign and geared around what they've done, but offload them from all the administration that goes into it. Cause I know most uh, successful entrepreneurs are not going to take on that role all by themselves. I found yeah. just about every one of them wants to help and they want to see it grow and they want to give back, but they're just not in a place to do it all by themselves. And so we have to think about how do we leverage them into it? And then what do we choose to be good at? So essentially you, you recruit the successful entrepreneurs to show up, shake hands, kiss babies, um, and go home and let other folks step into the role of, um, of running, promoting, administering, um, and doing all the kind of grunt work to get the ecosystem up around those that are already doing it successfully. I found that a lot of incubators really lived and died based on having star power. And I think these entrepreneur ecosystems need to have a little bit of star power that's built into it or tied into it. So if you have these successful entrepreneurs, you have some star power with it, that makes a big difference in attracting people into it and attracting money into it. And so you really need to make sure that component is built into it. See, many groups try to start incubators and accelerators with just good intentions and maybe they had a good skill set, but nobody had had a successful track record in raising money or exiting businesses. And so that that became really hard to sustain in the long haul because you really do have to have investors come in and fund it and keep funding it to some level. Once you have some wins, it's a lot easier at that point. And one of the biggest wins in Austin was Dell. Dell came in and really knocked it out of the park. And not only did they bring great business to Austin, but they also turned many of their employees into angel investors who took that ethos out. And they were tech savvy and they they knew how to grow a business at that time. And they uh, grew, it, grew it up from there. So when you have some big wins, you can leverage that into the startup community in a big way. Yeah. So um, it's March 27th, 2020. Um, so as you alluded to earlier, um, talking about networks and, um, and events and your, your national or nationwide events are kind of in a, in a shutdown mode. Um, I mean, the whole country is kind of on freeze as we, you know, try to quote unquote flatten the curve and reduce the impact of the um, coronavirus or COVID-19. Um, when you talk to entrepreneurs and not just about this, right, every business runs into different challenges. Um, you know, there's a competitor somewhere else that's growing faster than they are that raises a big money. How do you talk to entrepreneurs about the challenges that face them? on um on the road right i mean challenges are are inevitable so how do you walk through those conversations with with the entrepreneurs that you're investing in and staying in constant contact with well just to bring up the current lockdown issue we're in with covid19 coronavirus what we found is that half of them had products and tools that were fit very well into the coronavirus economy so to speak in other words, some of these things that you, you need, you know, for example, now we have to start, we told all the schools to close and everybody go home and start uh, learning based on distance learning. We closed all the gyms and said, go home and just work out at home. And then we said, for healthcare, don't come in. Let's just go online and use telehealth. And these trends are already going on for many years before, but what I see in this economy is that it's accelerating the use of those tools. And those 
companies in our program that were already on that path and using those tools. Engagement was online. Content was online. Are, are finding a, a, a great new growth story for what they're doing. And when we get to the other side of it, I wonder how much of it we're going back to the old way versus we're just going to keep on that same path. And so the, my, my message is find out what the drivers are that are already going on and be a part of those things. Those who are doing physical events, and that's all they did was physical events. Uh, you have to think hard about sticking with that. It's time to start getting on the bandwagon of these drivers that are already going on and being a part of that because coronavirus is actually accelerating it. And so that's the key is to not fight the change, but to be a part of the, the next generation, because I think we're going to see uh, a big shift into online education after this, because when you start seeing how much more efficient it is, how much lower cost it is, how many more people you can uh, access with it, it, it just seems like you, you, you just got to be a part of that. Yeah, no. So does it change your thesis going forward? I mean, um, is this a new thesis? I mean, every every decade or I guess the time frame's even shortening. It's not even decade now anymore. It's every, you know, a shorter time frame, every three, four, five years, there's a new theme. Is the new theme gonna be um the shift to online learning and online utilization of um of resources? Sure. And, you know, you think about delivery to the home, you have to think about, you know, instead of putting everything into a local grocery store, why not just ship it straight to the home and, and bypass the local uh, depot? And so I could see those grocery stores turning away from being places where you go buy product to being more warehouses. That's where the product is stored and then it ships straight to your house. Why do I need to go down and pick it up? Just deliver it. And you start looking at the economics of that. That's actually a lot more efficient. You're not spending time grabbing groceries. A delivery truck is bringing it to your house anyway. It just seems like that's where it's going anyway. And this coronavirus is just accelerating that and highlighting why that's that's a good thing. And so I think in crisis, we start to figure out what really stands the test of time. And that should uh, indicate to us where we should be spending our time and building business models and wanting to be a part of that as opposed to fighting that. I see a lot of people trying to fight it and you know, waiting for it to go away so we can go back to the way we were. And I think some of them are going to go back and it's not going to be the way we were anymore. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to continue going online. We're going to continue doing this through uh, these other means. And so it's just as, you know, it making uh, use of the opportunity here, you know, chaos and opportunity, you know, chaos brings opportunity. And so I think people should look at this as this is an opportunity to shift your business over, be a part of that, because even going forward, it's still going to continue to grow and be a part of it. I think more education will continue to go online, more delivery will continue to go straight to the home. And you know, restaurants are now closing down their dining facility and shifting to takeout. Well, they were doing that before the coronavirus, but when it comes back, I suspect a lot of those people will continue to order out versus dine in. I, we will do some of that, but I think we're going to see it, it go down quite a bit and not come back. Well, the winners in that case are the ones that shift their supply chain to do takeout delivery as opposed to dine in. And so we should be thinking about how we can start to use this time to position for it. So you have this great inflection point. All these workers went home. When they come back, are we going to do the same thing or are we going to do something different? Yeah, no, it's a um, it's a phenomenal point um, and something that, you know, I think you're exactly right. You know, things, you know, times like this, it, it always seems like, um, you know, normal is what was, but, you know, you hear it all the time The it's the new normal and uh, we'll enter a time of new normal after this. And it's a great opportunity for those entrepreneurs to define what that new normal is, right? That's right. It's going to be a new normal, a new economy. I, I call this the coronavirus economy because I see some groups uh, thriving in it, doing very well. And then I see others that are not thriving in it. And uh, don't 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 just get burned by it. Start to change to adapt to it, and you know adapt to the new models that are coming up because it's it's simply accelerating what was already going on. Not, none of this yeah. was brand new. It was always you know these trends are of delivery, online engagement, and content. They've been going on for several years, but now they're really jumping to the next level. So. 
No, I agree 100%. So, um, Hall, this has been an awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed um, you know, learning about or you know sharing the story that you've created over the course of the last 20 or 30 years and um, the 10 Capital Network and um, your view on getting um, kind of predefining returns, et cetera, et cetera. So um, hopefully we can get the 10 Capital Network to stop in on, um, on Charlotte at some point in the not too distant future, have an event here. We'd love to have you. Um, show you what a great city we've got and what a you know kind of building startup scene we're building here so um, but thanks again so much for joining us on the podcast great thanks for having me appreciate the offer and love to come out to the charlotte uh, group when whenever the time is right and we get past this and appreciate your taking time to record this today so thanks thanks so much It is owner of and an investment advisor representative of Portis Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Registration does not apply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.